Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Full steam ahead with our study of the book of James. In our last study, James made it clear in chapter 1 that the power to sin comes from within. We start again, James chapter 1, starting with verse 17. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Andras Tomas is the name that government officials gave a man decades ago in a Russian psychiatric hospital. He'd been drafted into the army, but the authorities had mistaken his native Hungarian language for the gibberish of a lunatic and had him committed. Then they forgot about him for 53 years. A psychiatrist at the hospital began to realize what had happened, and he began to help Tomas. Think of this, for 53 years he was called by a different name. So in his old age, he could not even remember his real name and where he was from. They began to help him, and in the year 2000, he returned home to Budapest as a war hero, as the last prisoner of World War II. Not only had he forgotten his real name, but because he had no access to a mirror, he had not even seen his own face in over five decades. According to a news account, For hours, the old man sat and studied his face in a mirror. The deep, set eyes, the gray stubble on the chin, the wrinkles on the forehead. It was his face, but it was a shocking revelation. In our text before us, James uses an illustration that is pretty close to this. To describe in verses 23 and 24, the believer in Christ who fails to live out the word of God. They are like a man looking in a mirror, looking at their new identity in Christ, and they walk away completely forgetting who they are. This is the description given of the believer in Christ who listens to the word of God but does not obey. As we move through this text, 
keep this in the back of your mind. In this section of our text, everything in this passage is about who we are in Christ. Everything in this passage is about our responsibility as men and women who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb to live out the Word. To not be like those who hear the precious teaching of the Word of God and fail to remember who they are in Christ, who fail to remember their responsibility to obey the Word of God. Take a look at how we start out with verse 17. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. On the one hand, James is moving forward, and on the other hand, James is tying back to the theme of verse 5, of the character of God, of his giving nature. And this first statement in verse 17 is a powerful statement that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Think of the path that James is taking us down. He is challenging us to examine our view of who God is. By the very definition of who he is. God is gracious. God is generous. It certainly is true that every gift that we enjoy ultimately does come from God. But if you break this down, if you look at the context, we have to remember that some were proclaiming that God is the author of sin, that God causes people or tempts people to sin. So here is what this means. James did not have in mind God giving us the material things of the world when he wrote of the good gifts coming from God. The point of this text is not to say that God is going to give you a nice home and two cars in the garage. The point was not even to say that God is going to give you three hot meals and clothes to keep you warm. James is talking about our relationship to God and our battle against sin. Here is the point. Here is what James was getting at. Because of who God is, because these gifts come from him, every gift that God gives to his children are going to be good. God is not involved in tempting us to sin, but God is in the business of giving us gifts that help us in our walk in Christ. He is the one who helps us to resist temptation. He is the one who helps us to understand our identity in Christ. And he is the one that helps us to pursue the righteous living that belongs to his people. These precious gifts come to us from the Father of lights. Let's think of why it is that James referred to God as the Father of lights. James, with his Jewish background, and writing to Jewish believers by nature would avoid using the name for God. The lights are simply a reference to the sun, the light that is reflected off of the moon and possibly even the stars themselves. The father of lights is a way of saying the creator, the sustainer of these lights. These lights in the sky reflect his glory. The father of lights was an expression that was used by the Jews to refer to God in heaven. But notice the statement tucked on the end of verse 17 about God, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God does not change. God does not shift. The light of the sun, the light reflected off of the moon, it changes over time. The sun is stronger in the summer. The light reflected off of the moon is stronger some nights than others, depending on the position of the moon in the sky. But God, the creator of these lights, he himself does not change. 
shadow of turning at the end of verse 17. It refers to the shadow that is cast by turning as the earth, the moon, the sun, and the stars all rotate and move. It gives us day and night. It gives us the seasons of the year. Creation is always moving. It is always changing, but not so with the creator himself. The light from God is constant. There's no darkness found in God. The light of God's holiness never dims. And therefore, it is simply impossible that God would ever be the tempter of men. Take a look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. One illustration that James gives to us of the perfect gifts of God is the new birth, the new life we have in Christ. Let's put this verse into context. Let's make sure we understand the intent of James in this verse. Sin brought death, but God made the decision, God made the choice to not let all of mankind perish in sin. He didn't have to do anything about our sin problem. God wasn't forced to offer up a savior, but yet he did because he chose to. It was a part of his will. It was being said that God tempts man to sin. James responded by saying, not true, not true at all. In fact, God is the author of the good gift of eternal life. God chose to offer us a path of escape. It was something he did of his own will. Notice the next part. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Here it is that we have the means that God uses to bring men and women to redemption. New life in Christ comes by the word of truth. The word of truth is a clear reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 defines the word of truth for us. Listen to what it records. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also Having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We are talking about the truth of God as revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, faithfully proclaimed under the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is what brings regeneration in the hearts of those who receive it. There is no substitute for the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Isn't this what we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul told the church of Thessalonica, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which, listen, also effectively works in you who believe. The word of God. The gospel of Christ only effectively works in those who believe. Proclamation of the gospel, hearing the gospel, receiving the gospel, and the word working in those who believe. That is the order that we see in the word of God. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. Having been born again, and don't miss this, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Salvation comes through the transforming power of the gospel of Christ. Salvation comes as men and women receive the gospel. John 1, 12, But as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. 
Think of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Faith is not an act of the human will. Faith is trust in the truth of God when it is revealed to us. And the verb that James uses for brought us literally means to give birth. New birth comes by the word of truth, by the gospel of Christ. Notice again the second part of verse 18, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Certainly this was true for James and the early church, that they were the firstfruits of the church age. The idea of the firstfruits comes, of course, from the Old Testament law that required the first part of the harvest, which belonged to God, to be offered to him before the rest could be used. The first fruits were basically the pledge of the full harvest that was yet to come. The Apostle Paul used this term in a different way to refer to the first converts of a given province. You may want to jot down Romans 16.5 and 1 Corinthians 16.15. In both of those places, Paul used the term first fruits, referring to the first converts in an area as the promise of the coming harvest. Listen to 1 Corinthians 16. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is, listen, the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Notice in our text, James included himself, recording that we might be. These Jewish Christians were the first sheaves of the gospel harvest. They were a sample of the coming harvest, and therefore they proclaimed the church age that God was bringing to the world. James ends verse 18 by testifying, first fruits of his creatures. Now, that seems like strange wording to us, but the context of the verse, it dictates that James was speaking of the first fruits of the men and women who belong to Christ. James also might have had in mind that they would be the first fruits of all creation that will one day be transformed, meaning that our new life in Christ, it foreshadows what God is going to do in creation. The message from James was that God was not tempting men and women to sin. God was actively working in the world to bring men and women to redemption through the gospel of Christ. In other words, this is the point. James was encouraging the believers in Christ to continue to trust the Lord, to lead us through the trials. God is faithful. His intentions for us are good, and we have no excuse for failing to trust him. Verses 19 and 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Verse 19 starts out with some subtle but important words. So then, my beloved brethren. Most of the modern translations follow a different path. But I believe the word so then or wherefore of the King James is correct, meaning that this is building off of the text before this. Based on their understanding that their new life in Christ has been brought about by the word of truth, James was calling the early church to take it a step forward. 
and allow the Word of God to govern every aspect of their lives, every brother or sister in Christ, based on a solid understanding of our redemption in Christ, should be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Understanding that our life in Christ was brought about by the Word of Truth means that our new life, it should be directed by God's Word. Notice James records, let every man, every believer in Christ. It does not matter if you've been redeemed for 40 years or 40 days. This is the continuing mandate for every single believer in Jesus Christ. Verse 19, it could be described as the outline of this entire epistle. Up to this point, we've been looking at the introduction, but verse 19 is the outline of what James is about to discuss. Because verse 21 of chapter 1, all the way through verse 26 of chapter 2, describes the believer in Christ being swift to hear. All of chapter 3 is about being slow to speak. And chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to chapter 5, verse 6, is about being slow to wrath. And remember, this is the instruction from James for believers who are going through trials in life. Swift to hear means more than just shutting your mouth. It means being attentive. It means to earnestly listen to receive the message. And not only must we be quick to listen, but we also must be slow to speak and slow to wrath. Listen to Proverbs 17, verses 27 and 28. He who has knowledge spares his words. And a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. Consider your words before you speak. How often we all find ourselves regretting the words of something that we spoke. If a man is quick-tempered, he often finds himself not only angry, but speaking words that he will regret later on. In fact, If you look at almost every conflict, at the root of it, people are not listening to one another. They are quick to speak and quick to anger. James reminds us that the wise person learns to control the emotion of anger. The wise person learns to think things through before they speak. It's the popular teaching of many psychologists today to teach that emotions are just a part of the personality. And therefore, they often will tell you that they cannot be controlled. But the words of James teach us something different. By God's grace and the work of the Spirit, the man or woman in Christ can bring their emotions in line with God's word and God's will. Listen to Proverbs 29, verse 11. A fool vents all of his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. Verse 20 in James explains why we should be slow to anger. It is because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James wanted to dismiss the idea that men and women who claim the name of Christ can justify their anger. Because what James is telling us is that the wrath of man does not produce behavior that is pleasing to God. Anger leads to hatred. Anger leads to bitterness. Anger leads to violence and murder. It does not produce a way of life that glorifies God. I do not believe James is saying that you can never be angry because I think what we have in this case is a typical teaching of wisdom, which is speaking a 
general truth that in most cases of life, human anger, it leads to sin. Now, James did not record you can never be angry, but he did say, be slow to wrath. This is not any different from the other teaching found in the word of God about anger, that in our anger, we should not sin, and that we should not let the sun go down on our anger, meaning there are a few times when anger is the proper response, but they are very, very rare. And the problem is, even at those times, anger leads to danger because we can become bitter when we harbor that anger and are slow to forgive. Too often, anger turns into selfishness. We can start out with justified anger and allow it to turn into the sinful wrath of man. Always remember the teaching of Romans 12, where the Apostle Paul taught, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Our responsibility is to be quick to forgive and let God have the final word. Our responsibility is to look at our trials the way that God sees them, as an opportunity to grow in our faith. Instead of seeking to be justified in this world, we should focus on walking by faith, living in fellowship with Christ. Anger blocks the growth that God is looking for in your life. But notice how this teaching progresses. Notice how James continues to build on this. Verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is another one of these verses that is pivotal in understanding this section of James. Because if you misunderstand this verse, you're probably going to misunderstand chapter 2. So take the first part of the verse. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. James is teaching us here in verse 21, before we can receive the word of God, we must deal with the sins of the heart. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 2, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The idea of laying aside here in James is literally the idea of stripping off your garments. Strip off the filthiness. Get rid of it. Notice the word all. Get rid of it all. The idea of filth continues the metaphor of clothing. It means dirt. We're to cast off our sinful living so that we are ready to receive the word of God. Take another look at the second half of the verse. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Notice the call to humility. We are to receive with meekness. Remember, James was written early on. The New Testament had not been written. Manuscripts had to be copied by hand, and not everybody could even read. So James had in mind the public meetings where the word of God was both read and taught. James was instructing the believers to receive the word being taught to be teachable, to prepare themselves to be taught the word of God by laying aside the wickedness of their hearts. Over in 1 Thessalonians, the wording of 1 Thessalonians 2.13 proves that the Greek word used for receive here in James, it means to welcome, embrace, or accept. 
But notice that the middle of the verse teaches us that the word had already been implanted, meaning, important point here, the word was already there. The idea of the word being implanted pulls from the language of planting crops. As a living seed, the word roots itself deeply into the soil of the believing heart. When we come to new life in Christ, the living word roots itself in the heart as part of our new nature in Christ. It was not, it was not a question of their salvation. James used the expression 15 times in this epistle, my brethren. And back in verse 18, James had just testified that they had been brought forth by the word of truth. The word souls at the end of verse 21 simply means life. In Mark 3, 4 and Luke 6, 9, this is exactly how the word for souls is used. Listen to Mark 3, 4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? To save life, same word used. Remember, context determines meaning. And where in the context has James already been talking about life and death? Verse 15, take another look. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin. When it is full grown, it brings forth death. Full grown sin. It leads to physical death, but embracing the word of God, receiving, welcoming the word of God into your life is able to save your life. As we said in our last study, think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs 11.19, as righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. Even James 5.20, he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death. Now we assume that the context is spiritual death, but the word of God, it could not be more clear in James 5 that full-grown sin leads to physical death. Even for Christians, even for Christians, their sin can lead to a premature physical death. But embracing the word of God is able to save your life. Embracing the word of God is able to save you from the consequences of sin. To receive the spoken word, they had to offer their hearts as good soil in which the word could grow. We must receive the word. It is implanted in us and it continues to save us from the consequences of sin. James is calling us to let the word of God have full reign in our lives. Verse 22 records, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I hope you can pick up on the thought in these verses of hearing the word of God. It is a clear reference to hearing the word of God being taught in the local assemblies. And James is telling us that, yes, it is important to take part in the local assembly. It is important to gather together for the teaching of the word of God. But if all you do is listen to the word being taught and yet fail to apply it to your life, it's not enough. Because if you do this, if you sit and soak up all the information you can about the word of God, but fail to ever apply it, what are you doing? 
you're deceiving yourself. This thought should frighten every one of us that it is possible to deceive ourselves. James is letting us know that it is possible to sit and listen to the Word of God being taught week after week, maybe even be in full agreement with everything being taught, and yet still fail to be on the path of obedience. James is teaching, keep on becoming doers of God's Word. Genuine obedience to Christ should continue by living out what we've been taught. Verses 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. This is the explanation of verse 22. This is all about the person who listens to the word but does not obey the word. Remember back in that day, mirrors were typically made of polished bronze. Sometimes they were made of polished silver or gold. At this point in time, they did not have mirrors made of glass like we do. So the reflection was not always perfect. But you could usually get a decent view of yourself. Think of the first part of the illustration in verse 23. He is like a man observing the face of his birth, his natural born face. The natural face goes back to verses 17 and 18, where James is talking about being brought forth from above, our new birth in Christ. The idea of verse 24 is that being a believer who hears the word of God but does not obey the word of God is like looking in the mirror, seeing yourself as a child of God and walking away, forgetting what kind of person you are. So you begin to act like the old man. You act like the person you were before salvation in Christ. Instead of like the new man, the new creation, you are in Christ Jesus. Notice the progression in verse 24. The man observes himself. He sees something needs to be done. He goes away and notice the wording. He immediately forgets. He failed to act on what the reflection had shown him. This is the man who listens to the word of God. He observes it and he walks away without any thought of acting in obedience to the reflection that the word of God gives to us of who we are in Christ and what this means for how we should respond to the truth of the word of God. Notice the contrast with verse 25. But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, he is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one shall be blessed in his doing. This is what takes place when there is obedience to the word of God. Interesting wording involved. They had two types of mirrors back then, hand mirrors and mirrors that would lay flat on a table. With a mirror on a table, if you wanted to see yourself, you had to bend down and look down. The wording used here means to bend and look down, to look intently. This man continued to look and did not forget what he saw. This man looks into the perfect law of liberty. It might throw you off a bit that James refers to the word of God as the law. But James is referring to the body of truth that we know as the word of God. That is the foundation of the Christian faith. Our faith, it rests on God's word. It is the message contained in the apostolic preaching. And it is the message which is now written down for us. In the New Testament, the word of God gives to us a true and perfect reflection of who we are in Christ. We have the freedom in Christ to either walk in the flesh or to walk in the spirit. 
But the example given in verse 25 is of a man who sees who he is from the word of God, a child of God born from above. With a new birth and a new nature, he chooses to conform himself to the new nature, not the old nature, because he follows the promptings of the Spirit of God in his life. And such a man, he will be blessed in what he does. Notice the first description of the law. James refers to it as perfect. The revelation of the word of God is complete. It is the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. For the Jews living under the rules of the Pharisees, the Mosaic law had become a burden. But not so with the law of liberty. It should not be a burden for the believer in Christ. The law of liberty is the law of love. It sums up all the commandments into the command of love. Paul teaches on this in Romans 13, where he explains that love fulfills the law. But notice the other description we have of this law. It is the law of liberty. This should make us think of John 8, where Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This means because of the love of Christ working in us, it should now be our desire to live out the teachings of the word of God. True freedom is found when men have the desire within them to live out the Word of God because they've learned from the Word of God to become in conduct who they are in Christ. It is the liberty of being who we already are in Christ Jesus. It is normal for the believer in Christ to live out our new nature in Christ. Think of the great freedom we have, freedom from eternal separation from God, freedom from the bondage of sin, freedom to be able to choose to serve Christ instead of the flesh. This is the living faith that we live out by the power of the Holy Spirit. The person that lives out the law of liberty, the law of Christ, is not guilty of forgetting what the Word of God teaches us. This person continues in the Word. This person continues in obedience. This person, according to James, is a doer of the work. And notice how James ends verse 25. This one will be blessed in what he does. Blessings in the Christian life come from receiving and obeying the word of God. It is not enough just to hear. It's not enough just to understand. This is the true liberty of the gospel. Living in the law of love, living in obedience to Christ. Blessings for all eternity. And blessings as we continue to obey the Lord. Back in 1787, a British ship called the Bounty set sail from England bound for the South Seas on a mission to gather what is known as breadfruit trees from Polynesia, transporting them to the British West Indies. The intent was to provide a new food source for the workers on the plantations there. And after 10 months and 27,000 miles of sailing, the bounty arrived in Tahiti. Here the crew spent months cultivating these trees and preparing them for transport. But during their long stay at Tahiti, many of the men became involved with the women from the island, and some even got married. When it came time to leave this paradise, the crew didn't really want to leave. Soon after they left Tahiti, sure enough, there was a mutiny. This became the famous mutiny on the bounty. And the captain and 18 loyal crew members were set adrift in a boat. The captain and his men did make it safely to Indonesia, 
and eventually he made his way back to London to report what had taken place. And almost immediately an expedition was launched to punish the men who had committed mutiny. All the while, a man by the name of Fletcher was now in charge of the bounty. Fletcher and his men returned to Tahiti for the women they met. They left off some of the men, those that wanted to stay there. And then they circled the South Pacific for several months, looking for a safe place to hide. Because they knew that once word made its way back to London, the British government would make every effort to hunt them down. They eventually chose Pitcairn Island to settle. Because they realized something, they realized that it was charted incorrectly on the maps by about 200 miles, which made it pretty hard for the British government to find them. At this point, there were nine men from the ship, and then they also had with them men and women from these islands in the Pacific. And when they got to Pitcairn Island, they unloaded and stripped the ship, and then they set the ship on fire to hide the evidence. Life on this island, it got pretty interesting because they discovered that one of the native plants could be distilled to create a type of whiskey. The wicked depravity of man set in, and eventually fights began to break out over women. Many of the men died violent deaths, and all of the original crew either was murdered or died at the hand of disease. Except for one man, a man by the name of Alexander Smith, a name that he went by. Because at the time he signed up to work on the bounty, he had been hiding from the law. Smith found himself the only man on an island with 11 women and 23 children. He began looking through the possessions of one of the dead sailors, and there he found a Bible. The book was new to him. He had never read it before, so he sat down and began to read. He read the entire Bible, but he more than just read it. He believed it. It led him to new life in Christ. Using the Bible, he educated the children. He built a school and organized a community to follow the Word of God. Alexander later wrote, I had been working like a mole for years, and suddenly it was as if the doors were flung wide open, and I saw the light. I met God in Jesus Christ. The burden of my sin rolled away, and I found new life in Christ. In 1808, this island community was discovered by an American ship, but the reports were pretty much ignored. And then again in September of 1814, it was discovered again by two British ships, but what they found completely amazed them. The people were living in peace. There was no crime. There was no immorality. The people could even read. It was a peaceful community committed to one another and to the Lord Jesus Christ. They chose to leave Alexander alone with his people. He died on March 6, 1829, at age 63. The Word of God, it completely transformed the people of Pitcairn Island, a community of rebels, and it dramatically changed them into a community living in obedience to the Word and demonstrating to one another grace, mercy, love, and compassion. It was accomplished by the reading and receiving of the powerful truth of God. Psalm 1 records, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Continue in the law of love, the law of Christ, the law of liberty, and the Lord shall truly give to you his grace, his mercy, and his peace. Could you recommend a book on church history, the end times, the gospel, commentaries, or a book on how to study the Bible? We get asked this a lot, and so we thought it would be helpful to have an Amazon store with a list of books that have helped us in our faith. Actually, we opened two, one for Amazon Kindle and one for good old-fashioned hardcover and softcover books. We're adding books every week, and if you buy them through either one of our Amazon stores, we get a little bit to help us keep the lights on and pay the bills. Just visit our webpage, returntotheword.com. Hit the Books tab, and underneath the menu, both our Amazon store and our Amazon Kindle store will show up. We appreciate your support. You can find out more on returntotheword.com. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.